the interesting thing about the, the business model being broken is this. These are colleges that have wonderful professors and just incredible students coming from great families with great traditions, uh, campuses, even their facilities are still beautiful. But because there's a math problem, a numbers problem, these places are closing despite all of those advantages. And so that's why I say that um, things are worse than even I had anticipated back then and why I really do worry about the future if we don't fix this business problem. and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, where we have conversations with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jeff Docking, president since 2005 of Adrian College in Michigan, a leading thinker, author, and organizational convener around topics about the future of higher education, among other things. President Docking is the co-author of a brand new book, the College of the Future, Lowering Costs for Students by Fixing the Business Model of Higher Education. Also joining the conversation is Kevin Harrington, co-founder and CEO of Rise Education, a Series A education startup building a shared educational layer for higher education. RISE was started on the Adrian College campus. We're going to be hearing more about that in just a few minutes. And Kevin is co-author with President Docking of the new book. Now we will include full bios uh, of both President Docking and Kevin on the episode page. But for now, Jeff and Kevin, welcome to the Ingenious Hugh community. Hey, thank you for having us, Melissa. It's great to be here. Jeff, you were an early prophet. I hope I can use that word because I really do think you were somewhat of a prophet with the message about the higher ed model being broken. And you wrote a book in 2015 entitled Crisis in Higher Education, a plan to save small liberal arts colleges in America. It's a great read. And in the book's introduction, you write the following. And I'm gonna, I wanna read this because it's a, it's a very substantial uh, comment that you made then. I'm writing this book because I am worried. I'm worried about the plight of small liberal arts colleges in America. I'm afraid many are going to run out of money, reach insolvency, fail the federal financial responsibility audit, close their doors, or be swallowed up by large state universities as satellite campuses over the next several years. If this happens, if small liberal arts colleges continue to struggle to the point of insolvency, we will lose one of the greatest educational assets this country has. And then flash forward in your brand new books intro, you write that the problems that you described back in 2015 have turned out to be much worse than you expected. You describe the higher ed model as being broken. So for those not familiar with the landscape of higher ed, particularly in recent times, can you tell us what you mean by this? Why do you think the higher ed model is broken? And can you give us some specific examples? I'd be happy to, and just know it really hurts me to say that because I love our types of institutions. I know that there are a lot of students out there that need the kind of high touch education we offer. So to say that things are even worse than I thought they might be in 2016 um, <clears throat> really does cut deep. But you know, I can go, Melissa, as recently as two weeks ago when I opened the paper and saw that 
just a wonderful college, you know, founded in 1865, you know, Lincoln College is closing its doors. Um, the year before that, it was McMurray College. Again, the 1846, I, I noticed that they were founded, got under 500 students. They're closing their doors. Uh, a college just south of uh, St. Joseph College that I've, I've been aware of just because it was such a wonderful college. Uh, 1889, they were founded, closing their doors, and they, they've all closed, even Mills College out in Oakland, California, I think they, they called it a merger with Northeastern, but the fact of the matter is, is that they're, they're really gone, and, and so uh, these are schools that are not sort of fly-by-night, recent for-profits that have gone away or maybe founded in, you know, 1960s or 70s. These are historic, <clears throat> excuse me, nonprofit, wonderful schools and if you drill just a little bit deeper, um, I had read recently where the National Center for Educational Statistics came out and said that since 2016, over 10 colleges a year like this have closed. And so those are specific examples of, you know, the, the larger problem of the broken business model. And, you know, sort of the, the interesting thing about the, the business model being broken is this. These are colleges. The ones that I just mentioned and the ones that are really on the ropes that have wonderful professors and just incredible students coming from great families with great traditions, uh, campuses, even their facilities are still beautiful. But because there's a math problem, a numbers problem, these places are closing despite all of those advantages. And so that's why I say that um, things are worse than even I had anticipated back then and why I really do worry about the future if we don't fix this business problem. Well, in your first book that came out in 2015, you laid out a very ambitious and innovative roadmap for enrollment growth. And so I'm, I'm curious now how that roadmap has played out for you at Adrian, where you've been president, as I said, since 2005. It's now seven years since the book first came out. We've lived through a pandemic. Uh, which is not, I should say, we're living through a pandemic. It's not quite done with us yet. Uh, but that wasn't even on the radar, right? When you wrote the 2015 book. So looking back, how do you assess the impact of the roadmap, particularly given what you've just said about things being much worse now than they were? And uh, are there some specific strategies from that roadmap that have been especially impactful, are still relevant, and why? Yeah, great question. And just to provide for your listeners a little bit of historical context, I had been the president of Adrian for 11 years before I wrote that book. And so um, I had a chance to see that model play out and have continued to watch it play out. And the model, which is essentially leveraged co-curricular programs, largely sports, but also many music programs. We started an orchestra, we started a marching band. We got into the head of an 18-year-old and said, why do kids choose colleges besides the fact that they have great history, English, and, and business departments. Um, we said it's because of co-curriculars. And so um, the, the fruit that it bore was unbelievable. I mean, we went from essentially a school of 850 students to 1,850. We went from 1,100 applications for freshman enrollment to uh, over 6,000. Uh, we were able to put $110 million into campus investments, all of our athletic facilities, are essentially new, but we've also redone all of our academic buildings. The last one, which is actually being done right outside my window right now, which is our art building. 
Um, our budget tripled and we really um, turned the place around, even in terms of the size of the faculty. We went from, uh, I believe it was 63 faculty when I got here in 2005 to uh, almost 100. And so all of those things were great. And that, that model that we called Renaissance One uh, really bore fruit. Uh, and I know you're going to get into this more as the podcast goes on. But what I realized over the last few years is that's not even enough. And you can only leverage co-curriculars to a point where it doesn't fix the business model. Um, you know, to probably use an overused uh, uh, example, I mean, you sort of have a more beautiful boat, you have more people on the boat by leveraging athletics. But if the boat is sinking because your CFO is coming in saying that the funds aren't there, you still have a sinking ship. And so that's really what led to book two. If I could just add one thing on that. Um, I think to go one step further where we really noticed there was a need to continue innovating on that business model beyond co-curriculars and really focusing at the heart of what our institutions do, obviously the academic programming and instruction, you know, academic programs account for roughly 50% of our costs annually. And they look mostly the same as they did 100 years ago in terms of how we do that instruction, how we organize ourselves. Um, and, and most colleges are producing significant deficits across many of their different departments. Um, and then as we you know, looked at the, what the labor market looks like today relative to what it did 50 years ago, um, you know, the needs of what employers need and what students need in order to be really successful in getting great careers and job outcomes, you know, those needs are evolving so rapidly and the traditional academic programming model doesn't quite enable us to adapt those needs as fast, as quickly and nimbly as we need to. So, you know, looking past the co-curriculars onto the actual curricular, the heart of what we do, that's where we saw, oh, there's a, a large opportunity here to continue innovating. Yeah, great. That's a great, great point. So let's pivot then to talk about your new book, uh, The College of the Future, Lowering Costs for Students by Fixing the Business Model of Higher Ed. It just came out, what, two weeks ago? That's right. Yeah. So it is brand new. You wrote a book during the pandemic. <laughs> and you read it very quickly for this podcast. So I give you credit too. Well, I just want to say to the listeners, it is a, it is a great book. It is readable and it is chock full of some really, really helpful um, strategies that you can take and put into action right away. Now, the, the two of you co-authored this book. So can you tell us why did you feel the need to write a book and who is your intended audience? Yeah, well, let me start with the intended audience, then I'll go back to, to why we wrote. The, the intended audience for, for me, and I think Kevin will agree with me, is, is first of all, just my colleagues, college presidents, college chancellors, because the decisions that are going to need to be made over the next several uh, years, um, if not the immediate future, will be made in the corner office, in my opinion, because we're talking about a positive disruption in higher ed but disruption nonetheless. Um, if there's a secondary or tertiary group, I would say it's college faculty, who I think are very legitimately concerned about their jobs and, and the, the, the teaching future at these institutions. And these are wonderful people who have devoted their lives to these students and made a considerable investment back when they were getting their own PhD or terminal degree. And uh, the um, fix that we propose in this book really saves faculty jobs top to bottom, in my opinion. And so those are really the audiences that we're going after. Now, the reason that um, we wrote the book is that um, despite all the gains that we made in, in Renaissance One, et cetera, we realized that um, 
that still is uh, very expensive to implement. I mean, to, to start co-curriculars, you got to have band uniforms, you got to have hockey rinks, you have to have lacrosse fields, and all of that is a big number. Um, what we have proposed is essentially doing the same thing on the academic side, but without the upfront costs. And so what this allows uh, uh, chancellors to do and presidents to do is to start several new academic programs and enrollment driving majors, grow the number of students that come to your school without the upfront cost that was required uh, through co-curricular programs. And so it's an efficient way to reach out to a market that we're losing right now because we don't have academic programs that students want in many areas and allows us to start those programs um, for what would just be a fraction of the cost if we were trying to do it in the traditional way. In your book's first chapter, you highlight some of the wishful thinking strategies that colleges and universities often turn to in trying to address their institution's challenges. And I have to tell you, when I was reading this, I was nodding <laughs> as I was <laughs> down the list of, I've seen them all <laughs> play out in, in action for better or for worse. And you suggest that these traditional approaches are no longer sufficient and in fact, uh, oftentimes provide a false sense of hope. So can you say a little bit more about this? And I'm, I'm curious, do you have a favorite uh, on the list? Yeah, I, I really do have a favorite on the list. Uh, but before I get to that favorite, let me just again contextualize this because I do want to give my um, my colleagues a little bit of a break because we've been around for so long. These some of these institutions, some almost two hundred years. I just listed several that have been around around one hundred and fifty years, like Adrian has. We've been through tough times before. I mean, right? We've been through civil wars. We've been through world wars. We've been through depressions. We've been through Vietnam wars. We've been through changes in the economy, and and we've sort of been able to go to these tried and true ways of, of bringing in more kids. You know, let's get our story out. Let's market better. Let's rebrand what we do. Let's talk about the value of the liberal arts, um, all of which are important and all of which have carried us through the past. Some of the more recent answers have been, well, let's start satellite campuses. You know, we, we didn't do that 50 years ago, but now you can go into strip malls and all of a sudden there's a college designed for a college. It's offering classes there in the evenings. Um, building new academic buildings. I mean, there was a proliferation on campus of new buildings, uh, certainly in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and all of that has uh, really worked. Um, but with this generation, largely because of how expensive college has gotten and why students now really kind of look at college differently than they did in the 60s and 70s, things like faculty research and increasing library holdings no longer bring more students in. And um, so my favorite actually is increasing library holdings because the internet has changed things radically with where kids go for information. In fact, I go to our, over to our library every year and I'm surprised by how few kids actually check out books anymore compared to many years ago. And so none of those answers will work anymore. Um, they're not working. And I fear that people are putting a lot of money into new facilities that kids might tour the camps and say, oh, that's beautiful. And I, I love that building and it's great, but it's really not moving the needle. And I just don't think that students are getting in their car with mom and dad and saying, I'm gonna go to Adrian College because they redid several of their classrooms in Jones Hall. That's no longer gonna, gonna cut it. Just to reiterate that, I think um, we're, we're trying to message in this book is really just a 
refocus on that classroom experience and really on what the increasingly diverse student population is more and more prioritizing, which is that financial ROI. How do we bring down the cost of what they have to pay and how we make sure when they graduate amongst all the life lessons, rewarding experiences, friendships for life, all the things that we know we've provided time and time again for, for centuries now, how do we make sure that they're getting that job outcome that helps them justify that financial ROI, even though they're obviously getting much more out of their you know, college experience than simply a, a better paycheck at the end of the time. Now, Jeff, you are a founding member of the Lower Cost Models Consortium known as the LCMC, uh, as is my institution, our president emerita, uh, Dr. Carol Leary, um, was uh, part of that work with you from the beginning. And what started as a group of eight, I believe eight small private colleges has right. grown now to over 125, right? Small and medium-sized yep. colleges around, around the country, which suggests there's a real appetite and an interest uh, for the work that you're doing. And so can you tell us what the big idea is that gave birth to the LCMC, what your early vision uh, is, was, and uh, whether you had any non-negotiables when you were starting out? Yeah, and I really wish that I could take credit for the big idea or even give credit to Kevin, but the, the big idea really came from President uh, Michael Alexander at LaSalle University out in Newton, Massachusetts. And uh, Michael was, was really clairvoyant and, and, and got in touch with a number of us and said, hey, I got a little bit of foundation money. Why don't we all get together in Indianapolis for a couple of days and figure out a way to lower the cost of college to students and families by 30 to 40%. And so we flew in, we drove in, we took trains and we got there somehow. We spent two days talking about this issue of the cost of higher education. And, and, and you know, students can't do it anymore and family can't either. I, I talk to families all the time, even upper middle-class families that are at fear that they're not going to be able to send their kids to college. And so I knew that Michael was onto something. And so when he said, how can we do this? I think it really became clear to the president sitting around the table that we needed to leverage the internet much better than we had done uh, previously. And, you know, every sector of, of society has leveraged the internet in so many ways. And it's almost ironic that we haven't leveraged the internet because so much of its development came out of the laboratories and the great research minds of higher education. Um, but in the midst of this, uh, sort of how do we leverage the internet to bring down costs and to create uh, a, a better financial model for our schools? We did say that there were some non-negotiables. And a few that really rose to the top were, number one, that whatever we came up with in terms of the lower cost models consortium's answer to the broken business model, needed to protect institutional autonomy. And our schools are you know, absolutely unwilling to leave decisions about them, their, their college to others. And I respected that. And it's one of the reasons why we have the great plurality of institutions that we have in America is that people sort of decide what's best for them. And so nothing that we put together that's outlined in, in this book that Kevin and I wrote infringes on institutional autonomy. Secondly, it really focuses on the part of higher education that I am the most worried about and that keeps me up at night. And that is that traditional 18 to 22 year old undergraduate experience, the Norman Rockwell painting where mom and dad drop off son or daughter in August and there's tears and there's putting clothes in drawers and building lofts. And then, you know, this sort of 
magical transformative experience that kind of produces these wonderful young adults four years later that walk across the graduation stage. So that was the second focus. We needed to be non-negotiable in terms of trying to bring down costs for those uh, young people. Third, we are what I would call liberal artsaholics. And I say we, I'm talking about Kevin and myself. Kevin was an econ major at Harvard. He believes in the liberal arts right down to his toes, as do I as a PhD in, in social ethics. And so everything that we uh, tried to do was to protect the value of the liberal arts. And then finally, small classes, uh, mm -hmm. as well as faculty governance. But, you know, small classes was, was the big one for us because we know that we could, through the internet, stick a thousand students in a virtual classroom and be more efficient, but that's not our calling card. We still need to have small classes where students can get to know their professor, get questions answered, raise their hands, so to speak. So all of that was non-negotiable. Certainly faculty governance over the curriculum was very important to us as well, and we were able to preserve that. So those were the things that we felt like were non-negotiables. And yet we still, we think we're able to, to create a new business model. There has never been a better time to study higher education. And the Bay Path University master's degree program in higher education administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today. Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. This Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching and program administration. There's even a joint entry track with a doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or you're looking to switch professions to work at a college or university, the Masters in Higher Education Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with personal mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. Take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. start this second half by asking you to talk more about the development of the RISE platform, which is the entity created by Kevin and Kevin, your partner, Connor McCarty, to give legs to the vision that the LCMC presidents had for a new business model that would lower costs for students and for institutions. Kevin, how did you and Connor find your way to Adrian, and how did the idea for the RISE platform originate? 
when we met President Docking um, through some regulatory work we were doing with the NCA and trying to make new sports more accessible and affordable, sort of a similar, uh, attacking a similar problem, um, he eventually flew to uh, LaGuardia um, in New York, where Connor and me were living at the time, and said, you know, will you have lunch with me? I want to run an idea by you. I'll jump back to the airport and fly right out immediately afterwards. You can tell me I'm not interested. I won't be offended, but just hear me out for, for two hours. And we did. And I think what we heard from him that was really compelling um, was not only you know a president with a long track record, a very successful track record, um, but also some unconventional ideas that we really hadn't heard before. And really around like, how do you bring a new academic program model into these institutions in a way that provides reliable, successful outcomes in the career fields that we know are increasingly important, but do it at a cost that's dramatically cheaper for, for the end students, for the end customers. Um, and that's really what, um, what convinced us to then move to Adrian College, um, where we lived in you know, student housing, worked in the administration building down the hall from President Docking, and ate in the D Hall for about two years, as we really tried to get to the heart of like, what is meaningful to these institutions? What do they care about? Where do they want to improve? and mostly just followed the lead of, of his wonderful administrators and faculty in terms of building this, this new model up. Melissa, if you wouldn't mind, I would love to just talk a little bit about what preceded me sitting in on that luncheon with them, because I also think that that's worthy of note. And that is that even though I had, as, as Kevin said, gotten to know him and Connor a, a little bit through some work I was doing at the NCAA, something else had, was going on in my life right then that was, was interesting to me. And it, essentially it was that I, Believe it or not, I was on a plane. The presidents, of course, are on all the time. And I was sitting next to a guy and I said, what do you do? And he said, I work at Google. And, and then he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm the president of a small private liberal arts college. And he went, whoa. He said, you guys are in a lot of trouble, aren't you? And I said, yeah, how did you know that? And he said, well, my wife went to a small liberal arts college. And every time we get their quarterly alumni publication, I can just read between the lines and see that, you know, you've got a lot of problems right now that enrollment's going down and, you know, money is drying up and it's just a very, very difficult business model for all of you. And this guy is super bright and a great guy. Um, and so, you know, he was sort of curious about Adrian and we were well into Renaissance One at that point and growing and he was curious about that. But he said something very interesting before we got off the plane. He said, I just want to let you know that Google has its own problems that are really creating headaches. And I said, please, you know, you're like the coolest company in the whole world. You've got more money than any company. What problem could you have? And he said, we have thousands of jobs that are open that we cannot fill and everything from data science to coding to artificial intelligence and general computer science classes. And we, he said, we just don't have enough graduates coming out. And so I took that and went back to my office and called him two weeks later and said, will you meet me for lunch? Because I have an idea I want to broach to you. And the idea was that Adrian College would work with Google to put together some classes in these areas that they desperately needed employees. And we would share them for free with all the other small privates across the United States that wanted them. And so um, Google limited how many schools could get in early on. And we went from five to 10 to 15 to 20. Um, but I had about 250 presidents in a survey at South that said, we want to be a part of this. And it was that template, that experience, that working with a corporation to find the skills that kids really wanted that I took to that luncheon just outside LaGuardia with Kevin and Connor and said, guys, <clears throat> schools want to begin to work together. They know the business model is broken. 
we don't have time to fix it on our own. Would you move to Adrian and begin to put together a platform that would allow us to do that? So that's really what I think Kevin and Connor hooked in on and what we spent certainly two years on campus uh, working on. And, and since they've moved off campus, another you know, year and a half to two years, probably Kevin, with these 125 colleges that have now joined yeah. us out. And, and I think on that note, um, just to speak to kind of what Rise's role in all this is. Indeed, once we arrived on campus and spoke with his VPAA and all the other presidents that he gave us access to, to kind of interview, um, you know, it became very clear that the core need was indeed starting the new majors, the new minors, the new certificates that were gonna lead to these high paying, sustainable jobs in the future. Um, but the problem for all these schools collectively, you know, time and time again, we heard from them was, look, to do that, I've got to hire a bunch of new people. I've got to develop my own curriculum. I've got to figure out how to market it. It's a ton of time, a ton of money, and therefore a ton of risk, knowing that, especially for smaller schools, most new programs you start, even after all that time and investment, end up producing deficits in perpetuity, meaning higher tuition for students, and it's sort of a vicious cycle. And so our goal really became how can we provide just some centralized software and a centralized administrative team that can really just enable these schools to collaborate with one another to stand up these new programs rather than all of them having to do it solely in isolation in a way that led to just too much risk for any one of them to take on. And that's really where we built this RISE software platform um, and the central administrative team um, that effectively you know, takes an existing, call it supply chain management courses, um, from an existing college, one of our partner colleges, and we really help them enhance it and build it out collectively by bringing in, you know, leading academics from across the country, uh, like Dr. Rudy Leuschner out of Rutgers in this instance. We bring in corporations in this example, like Rider Logistics, Harry's Razors, whose, you know, practitioners come in and, and give us projects and work at the curriculum with us full-time instructional design team who make sure all those classes are being offered um, to the same sort of pedagogical standard and consistency, and then full student monitoring and dashboard for administrators, content marketing help for all the colleges, et cetera, et cetera. And what that really leads to is the ability to offer the lowest cost supply chain management courses that one can really find in higher ed that any other college can then quickly and easily adopt as their own importantly passing through their full faculty governance process and place them on top of their existing you know, distribution requirements, et cetera, leading to a brand new supply chain management concentration on that campus with you know, very little, if any upfront investment, very few fixed costs, rather than taking years, you know, it takes one semester. And yeah. so you know, we really pride ourselves on that ability to help colleges expand in these new fields without having to add tuition for students. It's a great model. You know, I was provost in the provost role at Baypath. And when we were one of the Google um, schools in that initial pilot, and what I didn't anticipate uh, was the value added that this was going to provide for our students. Because when you're a small college, um, the, the resources, the academic experience can be somewhat insular, if you will. And I can remember our students, many of whom are first gen, come from underrepresented families, telling me what it meant to them to be in the classroom with these students from all over the country, from other institutions, with these world-class faculty that we wouldn't have been able to attract necessarily um, as an as institution on our own. I continue to hear that from students that are taking courses um, through, through RISE. 
uh, at BayPath. So it's really that the value added that this provides for individual institutions uh, is really quite remarkable, not to mention the cost savings and all those other, those other good things. So how many majors uh, are you now offering through RISE? There's, there's 25 different subjects available from everything from computer science to public health to engineering and, and data science, et cetera. Um, and we've passed about 300 of them collectively across, uh, you know, going approaching 90, 90 institutions thus far, all 40-year nonprofit, smaller to medium-sized um, you know, institutions, yeah. college universities. Do you know off the top of your head which, uh, which ones are most popular or where the most enrollment uh, yeah, I'm sure. You, I'm um, sure you do. You're a data guy. Of course, you would know. <laughs> I this. better. I better. Um, yeah. So the there's pretty wide adoption across quite a few, but I think the leaders right now are areas like um, computer science, supply chain management. Actually, professional sales has been a huge one. Um, there's mm -hmm. been a, quite a thirst for that from I think a lot of prospective students and parents who know that those lead to great jobs, even though it's not traditionally what we think of uh, undergraduate degree leading toward. Um, and then digital marketing uh, would be the other, the other main one. And it's all undergrad at this point? All undergrad, yep. yep. Okay. Primarily traditional on-campus undergrad, although some institutions do leverage our consortium to create um, more non-traditional undergraduate online programs. Okay. So you piloted RISE at Adrian beginning in 2020, and in your book you write, that you are not exaggerating when you say that the LCMC, the RISE platform, and the collaborative majors model have radically changed the financial future at Adrian College. So why do you believe this so strongly? What are the metrics that cause you to be so bullish? And what is it that makes this new model so transformative? And I think that's the word you used. Yeah, yeah. Well, it has been transformative and we have looked at the metrics and the data to support that. And I certainly wouldn't tell my colleagues it's transformative if it wasn't, but I'll, I'll give you just the real numbers. And this is the way that I've tried to write both of my books is sort of give me the facts, ma'am, only the facts. And it's a, you know, it's sort of a mean potatoes book. So the mean potatoes on what this has done for our institution are this. Um, my faculty uh, governance uh, process had approved essentially 10 new academic programs last year early enough that my admissions counselors and my coaches, the people that do the primary recruiting for Adrian College could get out and sell these to, to high school kids. Now, <clears throat> as of now, we've, we've passed over 20, but at that point, really, I could only really look at 10. And about a week before the kids started classes, I went to my uh, vice president for enrollment and said, how many students, when they filled out their application at Adrian College, said that they are interested in one of these 10 new programs? With the thought being that we probably would not have gotten those students without these academic programs. And I can talk in a minute about how that assumption was true. And he came back to me and he said, we have 49 incoming freshmen who have checked these new academic programs as you know the, the one that they're interested in, essentially the reason that they're coming to Adrian College. Well, Melissa, I bring in about $25,000 per kid per year. So when you add tuition, room, board, fees, it's a, it ends up being netted at about $25,000, even though you know uh, it's over $50,000 before the discount rate. Well, 49 kids times $25,000 a year is $1.225 million. 
And I could do that math in my head. And when you, you know, put it out over four years, it's actually 4.9 million. Now, when you think about how oh, some kids will leave or they'll drop out of school, I mean, there's going to be some attrition, but those are, you know, let's just say it's $4 million in that one class that I have right now. Those are life-changing numbers to a small private liberal arts school. Um, knowing that we're going to do it again this year and the next and the next. Not only that, though, I went to uh, my uh, uh, dean, my academic dean, about a month into school after the kids had gone through their first advising session where they often pick majors, and that 49 had ballooned into 79. So I have 79 freshmen. Again, this is you know back in September, October. I haven't looked recently that are in these majors. And at mid-year, I looked, and I had 140 students at Adrian College in all classes that had switched into these new majors. And again, those are life-changing numbers. The only other thing I'll mention that I found very interesting is, is I do what every other president does out there sometime around December 1st. And I say, okay, how many students do we think we're going to retain over the holidays? And how many will be back in January? And do we have to adjust our budget? And when I sat down for that meeting, my academic dean who oversees retention said, we're up almost 100 students above what I thought I was going to walk into this meeting and, and report. And so my retention set record level high. So we know through, you know, the analytics that you can read in just about any magazine now, the, the, the subjects that students want to go into, the areas, the majors, the minors, and they're really into technology and they're into healthcare. And so that's where we concentrated here. And, um, and so it really has been life changing for us. In chapter six of the book, you lead with a wonderful quote by Phyllis Thoreau, mistakes are the usual bridge between inexperience and failure. That is a great, great quote. So as you know, every entrepreneurial venture has growing pains. So can you share some of yours and what you've learned? You know, I have found one of the mistakes that um, we made and probably other institutions uh, uh, make is that they don't pass the majors early enough so that freshmen can see what's available to them. And so, like I said, uh, we, we actually passed about 20 programs, but only 10 of them last year were early enough so that our, our folks could get out there and actually put them in front of um, potential students. And so that's been a problem uh, for us. Um, and of course, the other one that is always a challenge with any new initiative is just getting institutional buy-in and being as absolutely transparent clear and upfront as you can as early as possible. And so I was sort of trying to see my way through this. And now it's, you know, January and February, and I'm still talking to people about these new majors and why they're important and all of that. And it really became a little bit clunky on our end. And so people really don't like to hear things through the grapevine. They like to hear them from the people that are, you know, in the administration building and sort of leading some of these charges. And, and I don't think we did everything that we could do to get out there with the information as early and as often as we needed to. Those are those are good learnings. Those are just general good learnings for anything that you're trying to do, I think, uh, in higher ed. And I want to switch gears here and talk to the future and uh, ask you to take out your crystal balls, perhaps. And as you look to the future for colleges and for students, what does it look like to you? And so what do you think are the biggest opportunities ahead? Um, are there some specific fields of study that you are particularly bullish about? Jeff, you talked about technology and healthcare, but I'm wondering if there's anything else you see 
uh, as you look around the corner. Um, and what are the big ideas that you think your colleagues need to have on their radar right now? I think the future of higher education is collaborative. And that's the thing I like most about this initiative with the LCMC. You know, this is us solving our problems, our issues, our hurdles from the inside. And, you know, presidents every single day get dozens of in, uh, uh, emails with someone in Silicon Valley saying, I've got a deal for you, or I can figure out your problem or, you know, do it our way, even though these folks haven't been in business, you know, near as long as we have. And so this is an opportunity for higher education to come together in a collaborative way and say, we can do things better, which leads to number two, I think the future of higher education is simply more efficient. You know, we have a wonderful consortium of small private liberal arts colleges in Michigan between Alma and Albion and Hope and Calvin and Olivet and all these schools. And yet when you begin to look at the duplication of a part of departments, especially in many areas like the foreign languages or philosophy or history and, and whatnot. I mean, these are important subject matter for, for people to study. And yet I'm not certain we can afford uh, to have, you know, all of these departments within a two, two hour, you know, area, you know. Um, and so I think it's, it's more efficient. I think higher ed's gonna have to be more flexible. You know, the, the, the speed of change right now in America, especially corporate America, but certainly many, many other areas means that we need to be able to change quickly. And so, you know, today computer coding is, is a very, very important subject for students to have some familiarity with and to take. And yet there, there's sort of talk out there about machines being able to code themselves. And so will coding five years from now being as, as important as it is right now as it is right now. And so if you've got three or four professors with, you know, all that goes with that financially, all of a sudden, not necessarily needed because, you know, we don't need coders, you know, that's just one example. And so we need to be uh, more flexible. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the last thing uh, that I would put out there uh, is that we need to we need to understand that um, whereas RISE and these new majors, and I do agree with you, it's healthcare and technology and some of these other fields, I, I would suggest environmental studies. I think students these days are very, very interested in the earth, the planet, global warming, you know, are we leaving behind you know, a planet that's gonna be inhabitable? So you know, those areas are important. I think it's still important to understand that that sort of 360 experience that kids get inside and outside the classroom needs our total focus because kids are transformed in these institutions and it happens in the full campus experience. And so RISE can really help redo the business model and provide much more in terms of curriculum majors, minors, certificates, but that doesn't obviate the need to continue to focus on sort of book one, if you will, which is what's going on outside the, the campus in a co-curricular way. So here's our final signature question. We ask this of everybody who comes on the show. So what is next on your agenda at Adrian at RISE? Is there a new innovation that we can expect to see uh, coming down the pike uh, sometime soon? Is there uh, going to be a shift at all in terms of what you're offering? So anything that you can, uh, you can share with us? I think that um, the one that we haven't talked a lot about that's really going to be equally as important to new majors and minors um, and certificate programs 
is sort of looking at those areas of undersubscribed uh, programs and majors that we can begin to share. Uh, and, and this doesn't necessarily require things like faculty layoffs or terminations. I mean, you know, I, I lose 5% of my faculty every year, 7% to retirements, people move on. And so there are probably some ways that we can take current classes, current areas that are hemorrhaging uh, quite a bit and combine. And so that's a little bit outside the new majors and minors thing. And Kevin uh, and his team have really focused on that in terms of really taking a granular look at where schools are spending a lot of money that maybe they don't need to anymore. Um, but the only other thing that I would mention pursuant to your question is I just think that the more presidents, the more boards of trustees, the more colleges that say, you know what, it's inevitable. So let's set ourselves up for the future. Let's work together. Let's be a team. Let's be able to go to the federal government when we ask for more Pell and say, hey, we're doing our part to, to make things more efficient uh, from our side. We, you know, we need your help as well. And I'm, I'm for all the Pell. I love the idea of doubling Pell, which I know Knife is pushing right now. All of that is essential. But the more colleges that jump in on this and say we want to be a part of it, the, the better it is. It, it would never would have floated with the eight schools that we initially pulled together in Indianapolis. 125 is a great number, but I think in a few years we should be triple or quadruple that. And in, and in terms of um, you know the, the rise side of things, I think Rise's mission um, is to really empower our partner campuses to provide enjoyable, affordable and riskless pathways to fulfilling careers for every student, because that's what every parent and every student tells us time and time again, they want. And so we really just ask ourselves each day, you know, what should the academic programs of the future include to help accomplish those goals for every single student comes through them. And thankfully, answering that question is really simple when you've got thousands of students and those touch points, you can just ask them, you know, what, what do you want? What do you see in this thing? And I think where our focus will be over the next six to 12 months, now that we've gotten the core classroom experience to a really good place is um, really bringing career services into the classroom. You know, on most, on most campuses, career services is on one side of campus, you take your classes on another side of campus, they don't talk to each other. And unfortunately, a lot of students never even walk into those doors of career services, which are crucially important to the success of students. And so we'll be introducing things, I think, like um, networking opportunities into all of our classes with practitioners in the field, first round interview prep, you know, corporate sponsored and provided projects, um, mandatory, you know, resume prep and application preparation, um, hopefully things like guaranteed internships. Um, and then the last thing would just be, you know, how do you lower costs for students? How do we work with our partner colleges to translate these surpluses we're helping them to provide into actual lower tuition? Um, and we've even explored, you know, ideas such as student debt insurance, you know, providing that at no extra cost to our students and our majors and minors, can you really start to lower the financial risk of their degree and make it all the more accessible to a wider student audience? That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, those are all good ideas. Thank you both. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. And uh, again, the book is just out. I highly recommend it. We'll include the title and a link in the show notes, but best wishes and we'll be watching for the, the new innovations to come. Thank you, Thank Melissa, you. for your commitment to getting the word out on all kinds of different initiatives going on. And obviously today, especially this one, we really thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners.
I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of Chellup, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash Chellup for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.